Thank you, young people. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Our journey through the Revelation demands that we walk in the footsteps of Jesus as he walks among the churches. The kids accurately sang it because he lives. Jesus lives and he's walking among the churches. And if we're going to journey with him, we have to journey with him walking in his footsteps. Because here's the deal. He's walking among the churches. And that serves to remind us that he's walking among the churches today. Today. Chapters 2 and 3, as we begin this. Chapters 2 and 3 talk to the, him talking about the seven churches. It gives us a picture of him walking among the seven churches, all churches in Asia. Today we're going to take, and we're going to take one church at a time. Today we're going to take the church at Ephesus. Ephesus. I'm going to call this church today the careless church. Now, they're not careless church because they care less or because they don't care or because uh, um, they've lost their passion and graciousness. Here's the deal. They lost their focus. They lost their heart. And, And they really didn't pay attention. It wasn't something they did intentionally. They just inadvertently allowed their spiritual focus to become blurred and their spiritual heart to be deceived. For me, the church at Ephesus is a really sad story. Oh, it's got some great parts to it, but it's a sad story. Because when you look at Ephesus, I want you to hear this. By the world standards, they they were a happening church. By the world standards, things were going great. They had everything going for them. Their history, their legacy was impressive. I mean, think about it. Paul planted the church at Ephesus. And then he left Aquila and Priscilla there to lead it. And in the meantime, Apollos, great, a great teacher, great man of God, came and led it for a while. And then Paul brought his ministry, his missionary enterprise, back to Ephesus. And he, and he was based out of there. And then, if you push it on further, what you'll discover is that, G, is, that, is that Paul spent two to three years pouring himself into this church, pouring himself into this city. And he was reaching people for Christ. That's how the church grew. In fact, they fell so much in love with Jesus, you can just go back at your own time. For goodness sake, don't do it right now. But Acts 18, 19, 20, you can read about Ephesus. They fell in love with Jesus. Jesus was the center of their life. He was the center of their attention. So much so that they took all their books from the magic uh, that they had practiced in the past. That would be their past religion. They took their books and they burned them. Talking about burning bridges, they were not ever going back. They were in love with Jesus. And then Paul, printed, and Paul wrote them a letter that's in the Bible 
called Ephesians. He wrote them a letter. It's one of the greatest letters. And by the way, we're doing James on Wednesday nights now. After the first year, we'll probably move to Ephesians because it is such a great letter. He penned that book to encourage them. He penned that book to them because they were a great church. In the face of great opposition, they had stood stood tall against their persecution because they had fallen in love with this man, Jesus. He was their first love. He was the center of their attention. He was the center of their heart. They were all in. Are you all in for Jesus? I read a story years ago. It arguably happened in Florida. I don't know. I cannot confirm this. I have not been able to find anything, but I read it. That in a large church in Florida, one Sunday morning, men walked in with camouflage on, coverings over their faces, guns in hand. And they came, they interrupted the service, came to the front. And they said, who really loves this Jesus? We're giving you a chance to get out right now. Three quarters of the crowd left. The men laid the guns down, took off their masks, said, Preacher, now we can, the Lord will be here because we got the hypocrites out. Are you all in or are you all out? I will say it again, but in Ephesus, it wasn't easy to be a Christ follower. I'm reading a book right now that you just want to know boiled my blood when I started reading it. Not because it was vulgar, it's just because of some of the things that it portrayed, but here's what I'm going to tell you from a historical perspective of Christianity. Is that, think about this. Jesus trained 12. At Pentecost, there were 120. Then there got to be, at Pentecost, they moved from 120 to 3,000. People suggest by the time I got to Acts 5, it was 20,000. time you got to the end of that first century, Christianity had spread worldwide. What was it? What, 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 what? They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have Facebook. They didn't have mail. What was it? You know what it was? It was the love that they had for one another. About the time I was here in the 70s, Bill Gaither came out with that masterful uh, musical, Alleluia. Song in there, Bethlehem, Galilee, Gethsemane, and the recitation just always pierces my heart. And it says, had Christ been a philosopher, they could have debated him. Had he been a warrior, they could have fought him. Had, it, had they been a religionist, they could have ignored him as an eccentric. But Christ was love, and what do you do with that? You see, Jesus is teaching on love transcends what we think about love today. And so we have a we-they mentality. We have to get rid of that and love people who they are, where they are, with the gospel of Jesus. If we can't do that, we're going to be like the Ephesus. We're going to be like the church at Ephesus. Be careless. Again, I want to say it's not because they didn't care. It's not because they didn't love. They were careless because they weren't deliberate. They had started out all in, but they had just gravitated away. Why don't we get our scripture in front of us? 
Revelation 2, we're going to begin reading verse 1. If you can and will, would you stand to honor the reading of God's holy word? If you have a red print Bible, I remind you that this, I don't have to remind you, but um, chapters 2 and 3 are all in red print because Jesus is the one doing the talking. Verse 1, he says, Write to the angel or the pastor leader of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. And I'll pause there to say that could be good or bad. And that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let everyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers... I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Heavenly Father, would you open our eyes that we can see? Would you open our ears so that we can hear? Would you take away the temptation to just make this another service that we can check a box off, that, but rather that we come and meet with you. Would you meet with us? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Did you catch that last verse? I mentioned it early in the service in this one. Let everyone who has ears to hear listen. That's my prayer today. Listen. Listen. You see, Jesus continues to give himself and his word to us and here's what he wants us to do this is the way it happens you hear you listen you respond you hear you listen and you respond you want some for instance somebody calls you and they tell you that your best friends had a car accident you hear you listen well where are they how are they doing and then you respond. Someone calls you and tells you that somebody's been diagnosed with a, with a terminal disease. You hear, you listen, and you respond. One of your kids tells you something bad's going on. You hear, you listen, you respond. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's what he's calling these people to do as he writes this letter to them. How in the world, this is the, this is the dilemma 
that I have faced with, with these powerful texts. How do I unpack it so it really makes sense to us? So today I'm going to offer you four thoughts from this. Every one of these are pointed toward them, but they are also pointed toward us. The first thing I see in this text is what I'm going to call a, the proctor they knew. The proctor they knew. Now, proctor is not a word that we use in everyday language. It's, Ryan's back there as, as a principal. He has proctors to proctor test. You know what those are. Those proctors are the people who walk up and down the classrooms and make you really uncomfortable while you're trying to pass a test. Y'all got what I'm saying? Walk up and down, make sure it's in good order, make sure you don't cheat, and, and they have control of the room. You understand, if you will, that in the same way that that proctor walks up and down that class and makes sure everybody's doing right, Jesus is walking up and down uh, among the churches. We've already read that chapter 1, verse 20. We've read it again in chapter 2, verse 1. He's walking among the churches, taking note. Brothers and sisters, this morning, Jesus is walking among us. He, he's walking and he's paying attention. He, he holds up the standard. The truth, is, the truth is, is that he's not the standard bearer. He is the standard. I want to say that again. He's not the standard bearer. He's the standard. Now, that, com- that comment makes many people, probably some in this room, really uncomfortable. Because in 21st century church life... We want to, we want to reframe, rephrase, rewrite, replace the words that Jesus has given us. You see, he is the standard bearer. He is the proctor. He's the one, he's the one that's watching us. He, you, know, you think you can change his words to live like you want to in this world and everything's going to be okay on the other side? Here's what I'm going to tell you. We need to get into our minds the truth that one day we're going to stand before him. One day he's going to adjudicate us. One day he's going to judge, he's going to judge our attitudes. He's going to judge our actions. He's going to judge every word that we said. He's going to, word, he's going to judge our priorities. He's going to judge our schedule. He's going to judge everything about us. He is watching. And as he says right here in verse 2, he says, I know you works. I know you works. Don't kid me. Parents, I know you've never had this. You never told your kids to do something, and they said they did it, and you know they didn't. And you look at them, and you go, do you think I'm an idiot? Brother Jerry, you're not supposed to say things like that. Well, here's the question. Do we think God's an idiot? You see, he's walking. He knows our works. Our works are those good things that we, can, that we do in the community. That's what he's speaking of here in verse 2, the good works. We did good works when we did up a room. Now, did it happen like we wanted it to? No. Did it turn out like we wanted But we gave it a shot. And I just want to say something else. We're going to continue to give it a shot till we find the right thing that speaks to our community. I know your works. And then it says, I know your labor. Do you know what labor is? Some of you men know labor because you have worked your fingers to the bone. You have worked till you were exhausted. What this is speaking of is where, uh, it's where God's people do works 
to the point, his works, to the point that they are exhausted. They don't give up at the first uh, time. He said, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your endurance or your patience, if you will. I'll remind you, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Being a church in Ephesus, even as good as it was, was not easy. Being a Christian, being a Christ follower was not as easy because in Ephesus, they were in the midst of great persecution. The city hated them. The city hated the gospel that they carried. The city hated the one that they loved. As I read this, you know what jumps out at me? Ephesus, for all its great stuff, had become a very internal church. Oops. Become very internal. It's about our members. It's about our people. It's about us. You do understand that when Jesus lived on earth, it was all about them. He reached out to them. He invited them to himself. It was never about us. This church was so good. This church was so good. I suspect that they were shocked when Jesus sent them this letter. I think they were fired up as he started the letter. But I think when it got to that but, I think it shocked them. You know why? Because as human beings... We tend to see things, the gospel, the church, Jesus, in terms that we can measure by our standards. We know what the Bible says. We know what Jesus teaches. We may even know the, understand the implications of it. But what happens in our assessment is we miss the subtleties, the subtleties of his intention, of his focus. Of his priorities. The proctor knew, and that proctor is none other but Jesus. Sure as I'm standing here today, he's walking the aisles and he's looking. And he's looking with the eyes of fire. They knew who he was. The second thing that I would point out as I as I walk down this scripture, but not just the proctor who oversaw them and watched them and was walking among them, but number two, the people that they were. The people they were. The Lord wanted them to understand, and he wants us to understand, that he knew the good they were doing, and they were doing good. And you can, and you can walk right over here, and you can see in his scripture, they couldn't tolerate evil people. They tested those who professed to be one thing and, and found out there was something else, and called them liars. They identified those liars. They gave, does everybody in this room know what misinformation is? It's a lie. We just give it another title to make it palatable. These guys, they, they recognized the liars. They, they couldn't tolerate evil people. They tested people. They persevered. They endured. And even down in verse 6, they said, you hate the deeds of the Nickelodeons. Now, the Nickelodeons were those from 
uh, from the, if you go back to Acts 6, the original 6, Nicholas, they had kind of gotten high-minded that they could run the church, that it was their church. I want you to notice about how it's phrased there in your scripture and mine. It didn't say, you hated the Nicolaitans. It didn't say they hated the Nicolaitans. It said it hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You see, they still had to love their people. The words of Jesus ran through them. You remember John um, 13? A new commandment I give to you. And it was that commandment that changed the, the nature of Christianity. Love one another as I've loved you. Christianity didn't flourish in the second and third century because of what people believed. It was because of how they behaved, what they did, the doer. It seems, as I read this, that the Ephesian people did many things well. They did many things right. They even did some things great. Can you imagine receiving a letter like this from Jesus? And you read those first three verses. The one who walks among the churches, I mean, he, he knows my works. He knows my perseverance. He knows my endurance. He knows my patience. He knows my labor. He knows that I, that I stood for right. He knows all those good things. The truth is, can you imagine receiving that letter and knowing that he knows you're doing all these good things. These were good people. This was a good church. Family people. Committed people. They had much to be thankful for. They had much to be proud of. They were a working church. They knew it. The community saw it. They knew that the community was watching. And they were, felt like they were great. You make the connection today. Great people, great families, great church people who are committed to the church, thankful people, people proud of their heritage, people proud of their legacy, people proud of what they had accomplished. It's the people they were. But the proctor's still looking. The people are there. So the third thing that I just bring to your attention is the problem they had. The problem they had. Verse 4 is an eye-opener. He's saying all these good things. He's walking among us. He's, he, he's saying all these good things, and then it depends on your translation. But. Oops. But. If you have an older translation, it may say, nevertheless. It may say, yet. Which means he's turning a corner. Which means this is a sobering moment. What's worse, brothers and sisters, here it is. They're doing all of these good things. But there's one thing. One thing. One thing I have against you. One thing that you're doing wrong. One thing. You see, outsiders were looking at them, and they thought this was a good church, a great church. Insiders were looking at this church, and they thought it was a great church. 
But there was someone else far more important who had his eye on the church. The Lord Jesus was walking in their midst. And arguably they were unaware that he was there. The Lord knew what the observers and the members themselves did not know. The Lord knew that this church, for all of its good stuff, all of its good ministries, all of its good actions, knew that this church was simply going through the motions of serving Him. Jesus knew that they didn't love Him, that they didn't really love the gospel any longer, that they didn't really love the lost like they once had. They had replaced their first love. In fact, I read a message this week and one pastor suggested if this church had been honest, their favorite hymn would have been Oh, How I Loved Jesus. You see, this is about the reason is about the motive, the very basis of what we do. At Ephesus, they were merely going through the motions. Now listen, we can, we can legalistically do all the right things and still be wrong. I want to say that again. We can legalistically do all the right things and still be wrong. Many people... Ephesus, here, don't love Jesus like they once did, and it shows. It's a careless problem. It's not somebody did on purpose. They didn't intend to. They didn't mean to. They didn't set out to. They didn't, it was not their intent to abandon or replace or lose or diss their first love. It just happened. They got focused on the things of this life and on the things of this world and on the, their hobbies and their habits, and they forgot why they did what they did. It wasn't that they didn't have love. It wasn't that they were a loveless church. It was rather that they had too much love for the wrong thing and not enough love for the main thing. They're the people who show up when you have activities. They're too spiritual to be in a Sunday school class or worship service regularly. But you give us an activity and we Johnny on the spot and we're good Christian people. You won't find that in this book. It doesn't exist. If I have nothing else to do, I'll be faithful to God and His church. You won't find that in this book. It doesn't exist. They had taken their first love of Acts 19. I mean, they were in love with Jesus. He was the center of who they were. Just like when you got saved, he was the center of who you were and center of your schedule and your attitude and your actions. 
And they'd just taken the first love and just moved it out, moved him out. Moved him down the list. Jesus didn't come into your life nor mine to take part. He came in to take over. Young people, I don't know if anybody's ever told you this, but I'm going to tell you. It's not because Brother Jerry said it. It's because the Bible teaches it. Jesus did not just come to be your Savior. He wants to be your Savior. He came to be your King. And the King rules. And He rules with authority. He sets the rules. They had taken their first love and just kind of abandoned it, lost it, flipped it to the side. Oh, they loved Jesus. Yeah, they talked about him all the time. They just didn't love Jesus as much as... How can we fill in the blank? Your favorite hobby? Your favorite habit? Your favorite person? I just don't love him just as much as... And these folks were that way, and they had abandoned their faith. Have you ever thought about first love? And that's what he's talking about here, your first love. Have you ever thought about first love? How do you know what your first love is? Let me give you just three. Let me just give you three characteristics. This blessed me. Um, Pastor in Chattanooga shared this 30 years ago, and it's still with me. First love is exciting. It's exciting. Do you remember when you fell in love in high school the first time? You couldn't wait to see her or him. I mean, you just, if you, I've seen, I've seen teenagers get on the phone. You have boyfriend here and girlfriend there, and they're just sitting there. And they're not talking. Stephanie, you're laughing too much. You did that, didn't you, honey? It's just the excitement of being together. That's what first love is. There is something that rings your bell in your life, and it's your first love. And it's not like the guy who got him a girlfriend, and he would go, they lived a long way apart. He had to drive about an hour, and so he drove an hour every Sunday to see her. And finally, they've been seeing each other a while, and he goes, I just want you to know. I am in love. She said, me too. He said, I love you higher than the mountains, deeper than the sea, wider than the ocean. And I'll see you next Sunday if it doesn't rain. Is that kind of how we do Jesus? You see, first love is exciting. You want to spend time together. You want to be together. And it's the joy of being together. Brothers and sisters, I love you. But there are times I come in here on Sunday morning and I want to think if I need to go back and get one of my funeral messages. It should be an exciting time when we come together in here. Whether the kids lead, the adults lead, or we have to go back to Eric, it doesn't matter. We're, got, we're praising the one and only. That was a joke. You know that, don't you, buddy? The truth is, this ought to be an exciting time because he's our first love. It's not only exciting, it's extravagant. 
First love's extravagant. Well, how much is enough? Well, it really depends on how much how you love him or her. Hello? If you love her. I don't see Deborah. We just went to Alaska. Oh, he's pointed, so she's. Oh, I see you. Oops, I'm about to get in trouble now. We just went to Alaska. Spent money for her. Oh, now, Brother Jerry, you enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. I I enjoyed it. It was fun. But she'll tell you that she was the precipitating factor in that because she wanted to go. She said, that's on my bucket list. And I got back and go, have I finished your bucket list? That'll don't on you on the way home. And she smiled at me sweetly. She says, oh, no, I got other things getting on my bucket list, buddy. It's extravagant. Let me make some of you mad. Let me just make some of you mad. Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky, their last relocation, it's been about six in the last 40 years, cost $90 million. And people go, oh, that's too much money. Well, that's, what did Jerry Jones spend on the, on the stadium out at Dallas? It's not a matter of whether it's too much or too little. It's a matter of how much we love. It's extravagant. It's exciting. It's expressive. First love is expressive. I think she's changed now, but since I'm picking on Deborah, she's made her way in this message. Let me, uh, one of her favorite stories of all times. A young man and young woman get married in love, and the man looks at his wife, and he says, you love me? She goes, oh, yeah. He goes, let's don't hear anything else about it. So days passed. They didn't tell each other they loved each other. Raised kids together. They didn't tell each other they loved each other. The kids are grown and gone, and now they're in their later years. And they're sitting out on their front porch in dual rocking chairs. And the husband looked over at his wife. She'd been so good to him for all these years. And he wanted to say something nice. Just let her know. He looked over and he said, Hey, Ma, I sure am proud of you. Ma had gotten hard of hearing in her old age. And she said, Hey, Paul, what'd you say? He goes, I sure am proud of you. And she goes, I'm tired of you too, Paul. Truth is, truth is, we should be expressive to the one who gave us life, the one who brought us back from the dead. If the only experience you have is walking an aisle, praying a prayer, baptizing, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, it's going to be bad news for you when this world comes to a close. If you know the one who lifted you up from the miry clay, the one who raised you from a spiritual death, man, did you want to tell him thank you every now and then? First love's expressive. That's the problem that they had. I know I've had fun with this, but brothers and sisters, this is your come to Jesus moment. I'm not ready to go in the invitation. Don't anybody move. We've got one more to go, but I want to just tell you, this is your come to Jesus moment. Because their problem is our problem. They lost their first love. They put other things in front of Jesus. Can you make? Can you make the comparison? 
I've asked you this many times, what is it that controls your schedule? What is it that controls your pocketbook? What is it that controls your life? Is it Jesus? If not, whatever does is your God and your first love. I hope you won't leave here today the way you came. Because he died to be your first love. He rose from the grave to be your first love. So now we see the people. We see that they have a proctor that's watching over them. Like we have a proctor watching over us. Those eyes of fire can look through who we are to what we really think. He knows. The people they were is the people we are. The problem they had is the problem too often we have. And the last thing that I see in this text is the prescription they needed. I love it when a biblical writer gives us an answer. I love it when our Jesus gives us an answer. We know about prescriptions. You get sick, you go to a doctor, he either hands you a paper script or he emails it to your pharmacy. You go to the pharmacy, you fill it. Hopefully you take the medicine as he has or she has prescribed it and you get better. But folks, for this to happen, it has to start with consulting the physician. Jesus is still the great physician. Great physician for my life and the great physician for your life. Any experience that we have has to start with Jesus. And when we start with Jesus, life changes. I see three meds that he gives here. You know, you don't walk out... He doesn't ever give you one. He always gives you two or three. Three meds here. Verse 5. Remember. That's the first med. Remember. You see, the truth is, is that you remember when Jesus was your first love. Can you remember when Jesus was indeed top? Can you recall when he was first in your life? Can you recall when he saved you? I'll, I'll say this. Baptists don't like it. The feeling that came from inside. Now, that's not your physical feeling. James was preaching one time. James Messer was preaching one time, and an 80-something-year-old man came down, and, and he led him to the Lord at the altar. And James said, I asked the stupidest question I ever asked in my life. He said, how are you feeling? And the guy said, well, man, preacher, I got gout. I got arthritis. I said, I am hurting. But that's not the, that was not what he was asking, how you feeling physically. He was asking, what was going on mentally? What's going on spiritually? Because when you fall in love with Jesus, you remember it. Some of you may not even have that memory. Some of you, the memory is so vague. I was trying to remember. When I was here last time and I left here and went to a full-time church, I think it was that next church that Lee Turner wrote a song, and here was the lyrics. When you say, God seems so far away, who moved? Who moved? If your memory is vague, consult the great physician right now. Because he can give you the meds and most of the time, if we have had an encounter with Christ, he has to bring to our attention sin. 
Because anything we move, that moves us away from God is sin. Anything that makes us less like God is sin. Anything that makes us treat people as, uh, like man does instead of like God does is sin. Remember where you have fallen from. There might be somebody here, you can't remember that because you've never been there. Today would be the day to invite Christ into your life. Not just as your Savior, but as your King, as your Lord, as your Director. Remember, and then he goes on to say this. Remember how far you, remember then from how far you've fallen. Here's the second man, repent. Repent. Repent is to do an about face. Those who have served in the military, it's about face. It means a complete turnaround. A turn from the wrong direction to the right direction. A turn from sin and self to the Savior. A turn from the things of this world to the things of heaven. When you turn and you look at heaven and you look at the Savior and you look at the Lord, all the things of the world will grow dim. You will never be, I want to say this, you will never be able to focus on the Lord as long as you've got a hand and an eye in the world. It won't happen. He says, remember, he says, repent. Part of, part of repentance is confession. Confession is agreeing with God. You know what, God? You said that was sin. You're right. It is. My attitude stinks. My action horrible make it right I turn from that and turn to you remember repent and then the third thing he says is return 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 to him if you can't remember you can't return if you never turned if you've never repented You'll never return. If you, in fact, if you can't remember, you may have nothing to return to. It may be that today you need to come to Jesus and be saved. A new heart. Jesus is calling. Some here likely need to turn to him. I want to just finish since I haven't looked at verse 7. Just give me about 60 to 90 seconds. Verse 7 says, he who has an ear to hear, listen. I want to encourage you right now to listen to the Spirit that's speaking inside of you. You know why? Because look, look on down, it says, to him who conquers, the one who conquers. How are you going to conquer what's going on in your life? How are you going to conquer this love issue? I mean... The truth is, to look at how you're going to conquer it and what the results are is to read this first. To the one who conquers, the one who overcomes this love issue, the one who overcomes sin, I'll give him the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The only person who gets to eat the tree of life in the paradise of God is the one who overcomes and conquers this love issue and is no longer careless 
It's the church. How do we do that? Here it is. And we're done. Jesus. How do we do that? First love. I implore you, me, every one of us, to turn our gaze, our heart, our focus, our priorities, our love to Jesus before anything or anyone else. It's not only His way. It's the only way. Let's pray together. Every head bowed, every eye. I'm just going to ask you to spend a moment before I lead us. Spend a moment in prayer. Asking God to reveal to you what your first love really is. Asking God, is there any, are there any blind spots in your life? Places that you can't see clearly. Now ask Him for the courage to come clean with Him today.